another Monday, and welcome to the Religious Studies Project. I'm Dave McConaughey, and she is... Brianne Fallon. It's such a wonderful joy to have you back in Australia, safe at home after your amazing trip. Can you tell us just a second about what it was like? Well, I've been home for nine hours, (laughs) and I can tell you through the jet lag haze that once I get over the 24-hour flight, that I'm sure the trip was amazing. But I feel a little bit, uh, just the thought of getting on another plane right now is just like shivers down my spine. But, yeah, after a month travelling around Israel, I mean, the experience was definitely, it was nothing like I thought it would be. It was was definitely... um, it's a country where cities are just so different. Some of them are so um, religious. Some of them are, are so secular. But it was definitely an interesting, interesting trip. It was. I can't wait to hear a bit more about it as <laughs> as you and I converse in future episodes. But what do we have for today? Um, today we have you, and you in uh, interviewing Elise Morgenstein first on religious literacy as social justice. Take it away. Welcome. I am David McConaughey, and today I am joined by Elise Morgenstein First, PhD and Associate Professor of Religion and Associate Director of the Humanities Center at the University of Vermont. Her research centers on Islam and Muslims in South Asia, theories and histories of religion, race, and language, and imperialism. She is the author of Indian Muslim Minorities and the 1857 Rebellion, Religion, Rebels, and Jihad, published in 2017, but fresh in paperback uh, in just a little bit here in 2019. She's also the author of numerous articles about Islam, Islamic studies, and religion in South Asia. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Thanks so much for having me. Now, we, we brought you today, and I'd love to have you back a second time to talk about Indian Muslim minorities, but we have you here today because there's something really interesting happening at your program uh, at the University of Vermont. Before we uh, share uh, the exciting new addition that you have to your program, can you tell us a little bit about the University of Vermont and what it's like there? Sure. Well, shocking no one, we are in Vermont. And we are the land-grant flagship university of the state of Vermont. Folks mostly know us for our leaves and our snow and Ben and Jerry's and maybe a guy you've heard of named Bernie. Mm -hmm. But Vermont's actually a really small state, despite how much out of its weight class it punches in the national imaginary of New England. We have about 650,000 residents, so we're really tiny. Um... So the university, while being a land grant, and so in theory serves the state of Vermont, ends up serving more of New England broadly and the mid-Atlantic states, so New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, a little bit more than it serves exclusively Vermont. So as a student body, we've got about 10,000 students, most of whom are drawn from Massachusetts and New York and New Jersey, with Vermont being the fourth kind of representative here. Right. And uh, and you're right there on uh, on beautiful Lake uh, Champlain. We are. Right? We've got a monster and yeah. everything. It's a religion professor's dream. I know. It's it's hard to compete. You know, when I was at at Santa Barbara a long time ago, everyone always said, "How can you get anything done with the beach being right there?" 
But having visited Vermont when I was a college student, uh, I felt the same way. How, how does anyone get anything done? And and I, I, I fear I fear there's there's a there's a good answer, and it comes from the sky during yeah, <laughs> during during a very particular time of year. I think um, you know faculty employees do get a ski and snowboard discount at local mountains, but I um, I am I'd like to describe myself as an indoor cat. Where uh, mm. no, thank you. <laughs> so. The fireplace is nice and watching it fall outside is great, but, um, but why not be inside? Yeah. So, um, at, uh, the university of Vermont, um, the religion department probably, uh, wears like at many universities, a lot of hats are the majority of your students, general education, uh, students, and you're doing part of the university's general curriculum. Uh, how many kind of majors do you have, uh, in your program? That's a really good question. So yeah, we are a teaching and service heavy department. We, um, we serve quite a lot of students and we serve a number of different programs at the university, but our majors are pretty small. We've got about we graduate between a dozen and 20 majors, uh, let's say a year. And we, the count of our majors over four years is really challenging because most first year students don't come in as religion majors because what idea of religion. And so we've got that same hustle that every other, I think religion department has where not only do you have to exist in a sea of options, but you need to both unteach what folks think about religion and then reteach the study of religion from that secular academic perspective. But the department is really interdisciplinary, like most religion departments. So um, until this year, um, we had four directors of other programs located in our seven-person department, including the Midi Studies, African Studies, Asian Studies, and Jewish Studies. So and I'm the reason that that's not true anymore. We have everybody but Middle East studies. I, I turn I turn that over to another colleague as I stepped up into the role of associate director of the Humanities Center. Right. Our classes count as many as you as you can imagine. They count across the university, so gender and women and sexuality studies, cross listed with history, anthropology, um, political science, the honors college our gen ed diversity requirements are a big draw for students in our field. But in terms of majors and minors, it's a relatively small population. Right. And, and within your program, and I know every program is a little bit different about this, but um, in general, where where do your majors typically go on um, after they complete their degrees? Is there, is there a, uh, a common theme among them, or is it as diverse as, as many programs find for their graduates? I would say, so we did a survey about this, um, I guess in 2014 now. And at that time, the data showed that we've got a pretty good spread amongst private sector, public sector, health professions, education, and social work. But I would say most of our graduates go on to what we've been calling the public good. Things Mm. like education, social work, nonprofits, um, or private sector um, businesses that have social missions. 
And so we've been using the language of public good in part because it dovetails with UVM's mission statement. We have a, an, we call it the common ground where there are certain values we're supposed to be teaching across the curriculum and across discipline. Uh, Um, But we notice that a lot of our students really do want to contribute. They want to help the world. And that can mean really different things for, for all the obvious reasons, but that's the trend we see. If any, we don't see um, even the students that go on to law school, the, the, the kind of law that they articulate wanting to practice is more along the lines of social justice kinds of legal pursuits than corporate law. Not that there's anything wrong with corporate law. I, I find it really interesting the way that you've, that you've framed that where not only are you integrating with all of these departments, so you start off from an interdisciplinary kind of approach. You can't, you can't help it. And, and then because of the situation at Vermont with its mission, you can then kind of directly draw those lines to how the perspectives of what you're doing within the religious studies orientation within the university really can play a huge role in the kinds of employment that students might be thinking about after they finish. Uh, it, it, it leads us directly into, I think, your new certificate program. So can you, um, can you share with us the, the brand new program that you've got? Yes, I would love to. So um, like many religion departments, we and humanities, I think across the board, we're thinking about things like, how do we go from, you know, blip years of graduating six majors to something a little bit bigger than that? And if we can't do that, then how do we make sure that the value that we bring to a university is evident and clear, both to our students and the other publics that we serve as a land-grant institution, but also to the bean counters in central administration, you know, at the next rank above us. And so one of the things that we we played with were this idea of a certificate and, and drawing on expertise we already have. We think our major and our minor already do work in the fields of religious literacy and the public good. Mm. But we also notice that students, so UVM is a university with um, technically 10 colleges that comprise that university. And a number of the, we're in the college of arts and science. And a number of those colleges are essentially professional schools the business school, the school of education and social work, uh, social services, rather the nursing school. And what we've noticed for years is that students in those professional schools do not have the flexibility in their curriculum. They are not liberal arts degrees and so they do not have the spaces for electives. However, when they do have an elective, they come to us and then they leave their student evaluations, emails, you name it, begging for more classes and more opportunities. And so we really created what what we're calling the Certificate in Religious Literacy for the Professions with those students in mind. How can they complement their nursing degree, their education degree, their social work degree, their business degree with limited time in their curriculum to graduate in a four-year schedule? And so they don't have the space for a minor. So how can we reach them where they are and get them something that they are already saying is attractive to them? 
it's it's such a smart move, right? Like you have students that are in your program for one course and they don't have room for five or six courses, but maybe they have room for two related courses. And so you just get that that next level of ask from those students, that second course, and then you reward them very clearly for it, right? You give them a clear expectation of what they get out of it. Uh, and you, you really have, um, across those 10, 10 schools, uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking at agriculture and life sciences and the business school and the education and social ser- services and nursing, uh, like you, you mentioned. And I have nursing students. They have such a demanding schedule uh, at my university and they are so stressed out uh, and they want to have the opportunity to to take electives that are interesting, but also relevant to their professional aspirations. And I think you've really captured a kind of way to do that at your institution. Yeah. And so when we were doing research about religious literacy programs, obviously Diane Moore's um, pathbreaking work at Harvard has been inspirational and important. And I know that the AAR just, what, last week um, mm-hmm. released their guidelines for what religion literacy would look, religious literacy would look like at the university. But when we searched and we researched almost, I think, I think something like 35 schools across the country, no one was doing this at the undergraduate level. It was all on the model of master students um, Mm. or returning students. So for example, um, K-12 teachers who are getting credits above their masters or are going for recertifications based on state guidelines. And one of the things that we thought where we could fill a niche that would serve our public, which is the University of Vermont's students, is to really look at these professional schools and say, listen, these professional schools are essentially setting up programs that are either master's inclusive, so a five-year program where you come out with a BS, MS, or BA, MA, or they are meant to... uh, subvent the masters where you don't need it. You come out with the degree and the certifications you need. And so these master's level programs are important and wonderful, but they're missing this population. And frankly, uh, an aspect of this generation of students who are coming out saddled with all sorts of debt and may not want to go to a master's degree. And on top of that, may not then add on this extra component. But I think undergraduates, regardless of their program, are really mindful of, and whether that's a mindfulness intentional uh, in an optimistic way or in a deeply cynical, how will I get a job after school way, uh, I leave it, <laughs> leave it to everybody. <laughs> um, but I think what we have seen at Vermont is that students really want to learn. They want to know how to do their next phase well. And they want to be able to point to something on their transcript, on their resume that gives them the credential to do it. And so we really, we really do think that pitching religious literacy as a job skill and as a social justice um, intellectual pursuit works at the undergraduate level here. Right. Can you talk a little bit about some of the responses you've heard before. I know on on Twitter, when you were sharing the development and kind of the announcement of the program, 
with all of your Twitter followers that there was a lot, you, you commented that you had gotten a lot of emails from other faculty at other programs that were really interested in it. But within your university, uh, from students and other faculty members and the administration, what, what's the initial response been like? Yeah, so the so we, we're launching two things at once. So we're kicking off the certificate. Um, the the only required course for the certificate is called religious literacy, and we'll offer that in the spring. And um, so the certificate is technically live, but the one requirement hasn't hasn't yet been offered. And so we are running. We're calling it the long month, the long religious literacy month, because it started at the end of September and it will. And at the beginning of November, so it's, um, you know, I'm a 19th century historian, so it's a long month. <laughs> and those events have been wildly popular. About uh, we've had three out of five events so far, and we've had no fewer than 60 students attend each event. I saw the pictures that every seat was. Yeah, from. and we had. I mean, it's really been. Surprising. I don't know what other universities are like, but at UVM, we don't have a zero period. So there's classes all the time. And so whenever you schedule an event, you're always scheduling against classes or labs or other events, obviously. And so getting students to come out can sometimes be challenging just based on what scheduling looks like here. And um, we've been shocked. I mean, for Simranjit Singh's talk, which is the kickoff event, we had over 120 um, students come and Rockstar. And, uh, we had a, we hosted a panel in conjunction with indigenous people's day. The first, it's the first indigenous people's day in Vermont. They've, they've changed the holiday rightfully. So, and, um, we facilitated a panel featuring Abnaki practitioners. And that is a room that seats 110, but there were, over two dozen people in the aisles. So we don't even know what the headcount for that was because we couldn't see everybody. <laughs> um, wow. So we've been floored by how these events, which are meant to create a little bit of buzz, get people a little bit interested in what we're doing. We've been really floored by the student response. We expect faculty to come. Faculty always go to these events. Right. But student response has been really impressive. That must be so rewarding to to have initiated a new thing and have this uh, uh, talk series and have the students respond so powerfully to it. Yeah, it's been a lot of work, I won't lie, but it's been really wonderful. You know, it's one thing to have a thesis, right? And we're testing it out. We think that this is important. We think that this will fit with the student body here at UVM, and we think that there is a demand for it, even though we don't necessarily see that demand paying out in our minor and major. And so to take this this gamble and see it paying off a little bit even, is uh, it's validating, right? And then I think also has been really validating is that our senior administration has been unbelievably supportive. So in order to get the certificate passed, we needed to work with other units across the university. So the dean of nur- at, the, at the time, the dean of nursing, um, who has since been uh, promoted to the provost's position, wrote us a really glowing letter in support saying that it would only bring benefits to the nursing school. And now in her role as provost, she's come to a number of these events. Her office is a co-sponsor because, um, you know, five events 
plus all the other hoopla that goes with it is an expensive endeavor. Um, so she's been really supportive from the top down. The Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences, uh, Bill Falls, is has been to three of our faculty meetings. He is actively stumping for this certificate in other places. And as we think about ways to expand it out, so beyond just the undergraduate program, thinking on a two, three, five-year timeline, he's really doing a lot of, le- and his office are doing a lot of legwork in making connections with the State Department of Education, with chambers of commerce across the state, with other deans at the university, so that it's not just our seven-person department um, screaming from the rooftops. So we felt really supported, and and you know that makes all the difference. I don't feel like we're swimming up. We, we might be strum- swimming upstream in the way that humanities departments feel embattled, but I do not feel like we are fighting our administration or our students um, to to demonstrate that this is a valuable program. That's so comforting to hear because we often hear about how imperiled the humanities are, but we have an instance here where we're really seeing that the students are responding to the work that, that we do in the field and responding in, in high volume to it, which is um, for, for those of us that, that, that worry about every time that another chronicle of higher education or, you know, New York times or wall street uh, journal uh, article comes out where it says the humanities are dying and everybody should do STEM and have a professional career track that it really feels like a nail on that coffin, but that's not what I'm hearing here. And um, if you have goals for your, for your students over the next, you know, two to five periods as the program develops, what, what are the, the goals that you, that you see um, for students that are coming out of the program and for what things look like uh, five years from now? Yeah, I think I think we've got similar goals that religious studies departments have across the country. I want folks to be able to read a newspaper article, a TV show, a situation, a comment, and ask the question about what is religion here, right? I think um, I always say religion is what people do. And to quote Megan Goodwin, she always says, you might be done with religion, but religion's not done with you. So I think our sense, and, and, and that's a, that's a line that I'm, you know, consider that stolen. It's good to have best friends that are quippy (laughs) because, you know, Vermont is the least religious state or the most unchurched state in the union based on all these Pew reports. And we can debate the validity of those and how we count heads and whether what we mean by that is white Christians and not everybody else. Um, but the truth is that we get a lot of students at UVM who identify strongly with spiritual, but not religious. Mm-hmm. And my sense is what I want from, from students in this program is that's great, but spiritual, but not religious is still a religion question. It is still, um, religion is still in the room. It's still part of that discussion. And if you can see that, then because we're targeting professional or pre-professional students, you will be better at your job, whatever that job is. Because if you work with people, you think about religion. If you work in communities, religion is in the ether. And I think making sure that we're making that loud and clear is a really big piece of this. I think the other piece of it is, is that as a department, we've been, you know, we're drafting articles about this. We're doing real research. This isn't just, um, 
a passing fad to get to get butts in seats, so to speak. It's something that we're actively um, at least devoting some of our collective research time to. There's a couple of co-authored um, co-authored pieces that um, Vicki Brennan and I are working on. And what we see is adding to the debate around or, or conversation, not debate, around how do you do this kind of work in the study of religion? And I think what we've come up with is unlike um, interfaith conversations that assume faith-based commitments or at least faith-based um, a starting place of, of faith and interreligious studies, which is doing slightly different work around education and, and, and uh, intertextual kinds of debates. I think where we see us is coming at this is the study of religion plus social justice. Mm-hmm. So that this is not just about some theoretical turn where we can all, you know, we can quote all of our great theorists and our students come out saying religion is complicated. Religion is what people do. That's great for the major and minor. But I think, I think what we're explicitly doing, what we do in the major and minor too, but we have more time to do it is to explicitly position religious literacy as an issue of social justice. The first line Simran Singh said when he came to talk about religious literacy was that for people who look like him, religious literacy is a matter of survival. For everybody else, it's a matter of social justice. And um, and that is what we asked him to come talk about. That's how I pitched this series for him. That's how I saw him contributing. And I think that's the piece that we're really trying to get at. If you're a nursing student and you want to treat a body, you have to treat their whole person. And for many people, even people who claim to be atheists, that is still within that frame of religious studies. I think that's what we can offer right. here. This is, I think, more and more what I'm hearing from a variety of places about how scholars in this moment are really thinking about religious literacy. Some are willing to go, uh, if they have a, a faith of their own or they're speaking from their faith, then the interfaith perspective is really a way to kind of like generate those conversations. Uh, I've read... Um, uh, interreligious and interfaith studies. Uh, it's a, a book about the new field that uh, Ibu Patel and Jennifer Howpeace and Noah Silverman put out. And there's a lot of really interesting uh, conversations that are going on there where people are asking, how can we acknowledge that religion isn't going to go away? It's an important part of people's lives. And at the same time, as an academic field, we have critical methods that we want to bring to it. And and I hear you saying that for you, that combination of things is the religious literacy work that, that you're doing right now. Is, is that, is that how you feel about yeah, it? Yeah. And I think, I think it's also about being clear about our pedagogy. I think, mm. I think many, at least the folks I run with, so might, that might tell you more about me than about the field. But most of our pedagogies, like I'm in Islamic studies. Mm-hmm. When I started my PhD, my advisor, Carl Ernst, flat out said, you might not have a choice of being a public scholar. People are going to hound you because Islam, whether we like it or not, is seen as a controversy. That stuck mm-hmm. with me because my training was not allowed. There was no possibility for my training to be inward looking navel gazing. And so my pedagogy has always been about unteaching. And I think I take Simran Singh's quote here really 
really vitally, like that unteaching is a matter of survival for some of my research subjects. And so I think for me, it's really about naming our pedagogy as a process of social justice and not shying away from the ways in which activism might be part of our universe. And I don't mean activism like like marching and rabble rousing in our classrooms, but I do mean activism like there is a political intent to everything we do. There is no such thing as neutrality. And we name that in our classrooms and we're not that good at naming it programmatically. And so I think the religious literacy certificate is really naming that programmatically, right? Like there are people you will encounter that you need to be able to make sense of and not in a, do you know what the Quran is? That'd be great. But can you read this situation? Can you figure out why someone might be comfortable, uncomfortable, threatened, not threatened? Can you imagine why ethical systems might be different from each other? And so that's less about knowing facts and more about applying theory. And for me, that's an activist position. Yeah. And, and this is, it feels like, you you know, you're saying the things that I try to say to, to my students, I'm trying to teach you to read religion in all the places that if we were more literate, we would naturally see and find it. Right. We need, we need the glasses that the, you know, rose tinted or uh, green glasses to look out at the world and see, oh, it really is absolutely everywhere. And in for so many people every day, uh, is, is that message um, the winning message for religious studies? Because I, I worry that there's a longer conversation that we are skirting the edges of here that, that, you know, maybe goes back to Timothy Fitzgerald and, and earlier where folks worry that somehow there's an illusion, there's this sliding into non-academic discourses when we start talking in this way about the, the goals of our field. Is, is, that a, is that a risk that you think uh, is present or do you think um, that there's a, a problem with that presentation of how we think about our program? Yeah, I I don't right i think i think that um again to come back to what i study my sense of it is that there is no neutrality and so yeah simply saying i'm a scholar of islam i am already assume i am already a politicized body my comments are already politicized i do not think that makes my research any less rigorous i don't think that makes my teaching any less rigorous i don't think um, in demanding students make applications and connections that are historically contingent, critical across time, place, and region, and sometimes language, I don't think that that's anything but academic. And so with right. this idea that um, that we need to be really careful about the future of the field, I mean, fields are supposed to move and change. And I think mm-hmm. that naming what we do is an important way in a time where the humanities are imperiled, I think precisely because we can't put our finger on the deliverable. And I don't like mm. that language, but that, like, like, I think I said this on Twitter, like, I don't like living in a neoliberal hegemony, but I do. And so ignoring that and pretending like 
um, I have some sort of rarefied data set that no one else could possibly understand doesn't, that just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And I also think that that is, um, I think that's a lie. I think that all of us are always translating these high level, um, particularly specific sets of information that we have spent our whole careers mastering, knowing full well that mastery is impossible, but working on aspects of that. And we translate that to our intro level students all the time. We translate that to our senior level students because, because, and so I think, um, I think I'm not worried about that in the way that I hear other folks being worried about it. I mean, I hear the critique, but that's, um, I don't find it especially convincing. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the problems with, with the critique, I bring it up because I know that it's kind of the, the potentially straw person that's waiting out there, right. To, to rebut, well, how, how can you have an academic field that is organized around social justice? And, and I, I agree with you. I'm not sure that that's necessarily a problem, right. I, I'm not sure that it, that, um, that, that that's how I personally would, would frame it. And I, and I, and I think the, the, challenge with one of those uh that approach is that social justice is is different potentially depending on the agency and the position of the person that you're speaking to and i think when we look back at at you know kind of the the narrative that has come from from fitzgerald and and you know about the ideology of religious studies that when we when we move forward in, in time, it's all always about who gets to claim right that that role, and and when we tell our students, well, here's here we we don't we're not really sure how to define religion. Here's the definition we're going to use right now. Let's see how far it goes. That's that's one kind of move. But then when you add social justice, you can make the same moves against that, right? Yeah. Who, who's who's social justice and for whom is it working and why do we want it to work in the particular way? And I think opening that allows our students to actually make those choices. They could see social justice differently than we do. And if we open that possibility, then they can make their own choices critically about how to apply that term, just like we ask them to make choices critically about how to apply the term religion. Right. And I think, um, so Vicki Brennan and I are working on this article right now. And one of the first questions we ask is, we're pushing this thing, talking about religious literacy, because it feels like it's a marketable thing here at UVM. It's clearly struck a nerve in other ways because of the response we've gotten. But one of the questions we were asking there, and one of the questions we're asking in this course that we're teaching is who is allowed to be religiously illiterate? Mm. And, and right. So even the framing of religious literacy to me is already about cultural and social structures that are right. never apolitical and they are not right. neutral. Right. Right. It's, it's the fit, the fishes that, that, you know, what's the, the old joke that the two young fishes are in the water and the old fish swims by and asks, how's the water today? And the young fishes are like, what's water? Exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, look, UVM is an overwhelmingly white school. We are an overwhelmingly white state. I think the last time I checked this data point, we are the second most white state in the nation. We have very few religious minorities, so that's changing with um, patterns of refugee resettlements uh, and, and other kinds of related issues. But this idea of like who needs religious literacy 
right? Like the elephant in the room is that it's white, either post-Christian or Christian students who exist in the water and do not know they're swimming in it. And so I think, again, from the outset, religious literacy is already a politicized term because it assumes that one was illiterate and now has become literate. And we know that for other folks to go back to Simran Singh's really poignant phrase, for him, religious literacy is a matter of survival. And one of the things he talked about was that he cannot be religiously illiterate. He needs to know what's going on around him, often for his own personal safety. And so when we, so again, I'm, I, I get the straw man piece of it, mm-hmm. read all those theorists. Um, but I think it feels unconvincing to me, both because of my own intellectual commitments, my intellectual training as an Islamicist, and just, again, who's allowed to not know always is a power. It's always about power and hierarchy. Right. I, I was, I was just about to say it, it is part of the argument. Religion is not uh, religion is about what we do, but religion is always also about something else, right? Uh, the power structures that are, they're using religion or being used by religion that we may not recognize. That's exactly right. Do you, do you think that um, for your students uh, going forward in the program um, that the the primary goal for them is uh, to reveal the the like necessity of of literacy in the sense that part of the part of what we are being religiously literate about is the fact that we assume that religion works in certain ways and then we just don't talk about it right this is the 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 water that that we're they're doing and that with the rise of religious nuns, that this is only an accelerating problem, right? That the students that we get now, it, it used to be that they might have been, even if they were not Christian, that they might have been culturally Christian. And now we can't even assume that, right? We've lost even that as a starting point for where the conversation can begin. I think that's right. And I think that's where, you know, we offer classes in our department, like many other departments on secularism, right? Like, The religion department teaches secularism precisely because of these issues that, um, and I think we're all really well versed in seeing, but we want our students to become more equipped to, to see that. Yeah. Well, it's been such a delight to talk to you about this today. I'm so happy for your students at uh, university of Vermont to get, uh, to have this really interesting conversation about it. If folks would like to continue the conversation with you about it, can they find you on Twitter? They sure can. I am at Prof Irmf, which is P-R-O-F-I-R-M-F. And they can also follow the department on Twitter at rel underscore UVM. That's perfect. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. This was a delight. So, I personally loved that, David. Thank you so much for that particular episode. And before we sort of discuss how you found interviewing Elise, I think it's really important for us to say that Elise Morgenstein first and Megan Goodwin um, have just started their own podcast called Keeping It 101. Um, So take a listen to that as well if you're more, if you're interested about everything that we've 
that we heard Dave and Elise discussing. But Dave, um, how did you enjoy that interview with Elise? It was so great to talk to someone who's from a department that's really thinking in very concrete ways about how to change the curricular landscape in order to bring that in line with some of the more theoretical moves of the field. I think there is a lag, there's a there's a real gap between how we organize the degrees, the courses in religious studies and the actual coursework and the theories that are behind the coursework. And so to see an emphasis on religious literacy and the importance of what religious literacy can offer to individuals, to citizens, to folks that are completing degrees. And uh, as I told my students just yesterday in class, every major has a reason to want to be religiously literate and to understand the motives and actions of religious persons. And I'm really pleased that I was able to talk to um, Elise about it and even more pleased that she and Megan Goodwin have this new podcast. The first episode is out. It's called Keeping It 101, and they talk about what is religion anyway. And it was really great. Uh, Listen, I encourage everyone to take a few moments and catch up on some of the interesting work that's going on in the podcasting landscape. It's such an important topic for us to be discussing because it's not just something that's you know happening at a tertiary level the idea is as religious education in you know primary and secondary levels is is something that is is up for discussion i know it's up for discussion in australia right now whether we have you know religious education or ethics education and it's it's something that people get scared of because of the r word because of the religion word but it's mm. it's about so much more than that you know i love this this concept of 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 social justice and of understanding your fellow man that sort of was underlying this interview as a whole. And it sort of gave me the reminder of, you know, sometimes when you're, you know, neck deep in a religious philosophy book that's very dense to get through, at heart sometimes what we're trying to do here is about understanding each other at some sort of base level. I'm 100% on board with you there. I'm excited to share that next week we have a interview between Chris Cotter, our very own Chris Cotter, and Beth Sinkler on artificial intelligence and religion. We're always pleased when we can to bring cutting-edge science and technology discussions in, and I'm super keen to hear what Chris and Beth got up to. But until then, we would like to say thanks for listening. The Religious Studies Project is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation charity number, SC047750. Brought to you by editors Brianne Fallon and David McConaughey, and finding editors Chris Cotter, that's me, and David Robertson, that's him. Our features are edited by Rebecca Barrett-Fox with marketing managed by Benjamin Marcus. Our Opportunities Digest managed by Ella Buck, podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock, and social media managed by Ray Radford. Don't forget, you can support the project by using our Amazon.com, .co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com backslash project rs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, iTunes and other portals. Thanks for listening.